Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to episode number 27 or season 2 episode 7 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I am, as always, Kyle, your host. What's up guys? Another week, another show, just making it happen week by week. No weeks off here since September of 2017. How's it going guys? I hope you are enjoying the ever-changing for the positive weather this week. We haven't done a weather report in a, in, a, in a great deal of episodes, so I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just tell you about the weather today. You know, something that goes completely and utterly outdated immediately. But knowledge from the couch weather report today in Lincoln, Nebraska, in March of 2018, March of 2018. It's nice as fuck outside, guys. It's super, super nice outside. So the seasons are changing and. As you may be able to tell, if you are a uh, constant listener of this show, you may be able to tell my voice is a little shittier, a little wonkier, a little less good, and a little bit more uncomfortable for me to speak. The reason for the season, the reason for why this is happening to me, is because of that goddamn tree pollen. Tree pollen, of every type of pollen that exists, is the one that I have the most reaction to and it's really kind of a weird ordeal I never really felt like my entire life that I had a tree pollen allergy or a tree pollen you know sort of uh, sensitivity whatever you'd like to call it but you know when I was a little kid growing up into the teenage years I used to just get sick you know three four times a year just a pretty solid cold all the time and and you know unbeknownst to me it's very likely that those things were actually somewhat having to do with the pollination of, of various plant species uh, around and about. And then, you know, uh, one year, probably five or six years ago, I, is when I first truly noticed. Uh, I was training for one of the uh, half marathons here in Lincoln. It was about this time of year during that year. And I had just gotten back from Colorado at a judo tournament, and I was uh, going for a run here in Lincoln, and I was doing the run, and everything was going well. It, it, I had planned on it being like a seven or eight mile run, um, which is a pretty good milestone to be at around March when the uh, race was in May. So I was running and running, and, and it just about five or six miles in, you know, after having basically come outside and you know, very quickly, you know, when you're running, you're not breathing your normal resting respirations. You have an increased amount of respirations, and they are also much deeper respirations, seeing as you need to, you know, take in a whole bunch of oxygen just to be able to keep up with the running. And all of a sudden, I start feeling really short of breath, and not really short, short of breath, but it feels tighter, it feels tougher to breathe, and I'm like, what the fuck is happening to me? This this is something that, you know, a, a, as a runner, having done this for a while, you know, getting more and more used to the way my body works under different types of stresses. This was an unfamiliar, this is an unfamiliar sensation for me. And, you know, I, I would you know, slow down and start walking, which felt weird because I had just been fine in terms of the mileages before. I figured this was going to be an easy one. It was like 60 degrees outside, a perfect day. And I slowed down for a while, kind of catch my breath up, although it's a little bit tougher than you know, I thought I was going to be start running again. Same sort of thing happens. So I just sort of go like a walk, run, walk, run until I get home. And then, you know, I just don't know what the hell happened to me. I had no clue what the fuck was going on. I was like, well, I just got back in Colorado. Maybe those couple, three, four days I spent there might have had some sort of adverse effect on me because of the altitude that I wasn't used to or whatever. I don't know what's going on. So for at least a week or so, I kind of thought that was 
what happened to me and that I would just sort of wear off. Then I thought about it and said, oh, oh, you know, you check the weather channel, you check other places, go, oh, the pollen count is high. And I'm like, oh, my fucking God, you got to be shitting me that I had this sort of allergy. You know, this is the first time that I really noticed that sort of thing. And so now I just pop a pop a Claritin and or an Allegra or the generic versions thereof. And everything's fine and dandy, but it always sneaks up on me every year. And I always know it's coming. But then when I start to feel the itchy throat, I start to feel the sniffles like that. I start to feel these stupid little things, but I know I'm not sick. I don't feel sick otherwise. I look outside. I look at the calendar. go, oh, yeah, it's about that time for trees to be making tree babies. So, guys, that might be why if you're listening to this uh, and you go, why the hell does he sound the way that he does this week? That's why. That is exactly why. Copious amounts of Claritin and a little bit of ibuprofen for any sort of swelling and then a whole bunch of goddamn water are going to make it make me get through this episode of the, the podcast and probably the next two or three before my body starts to sort of get used to the pollination and it'll be a little bit better. But that's just a weather report. That's just a life report. That's just an allergy report on me. I didn't mean to go an entire five straight minutes talking about my allergies, but hey, you come to this podcast because you want to hear about history, and sometimes I give you a little bonus about my own life. Today's episode, episode seven of the second season of the Dogs from the Couch podcast, otherwise known as episode number 27 as a whole for this show, is going to be about the first Barbary War. This is a thing that doesn't involve the United Kingdom, at least not directly, finally. This is a thing that involves the the baby United States of America, the brand new, very young United States of America fighting off pirates. Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, guys. Stick with me. So the first Barbary War, a war fought between basically the United States and a bunch of goddamn pirates in the Mediterranean. Not Caribbean pirates, as made popular by Johnny Depp and crew, but Mediterranean pirates often hailing from North African countries and nation states uh, around the region, basically Sort of, you could sort of think of them as proxies of the Ottoman Empire at the time. The Ottoman Empire being one of the very last large Islamic uh, caliphates that that ruled in, in in such a monarchical and large fashion. Obviously, today you can still see that you can still see that influence in like Saudi Arabia and Jordan and other places that still have kings of their nation and royal families, but not to the extent of the very large Ottoman Empire, which itself had grown from the old uh, Byzantine Empire, which itself had grown from the Roman Empire. So anyhow, that's just a little random factoid about those people over there. But the first Barbary War took place between 1801 and 1805, sometimes also known as the Tripolitan War or the Barbary Coast War. And it was the first of two wars. We're not going to talk about the second Barbary War today. We're just going to talk about the first one because the first one to me is a lot more interesting than the second one. Also, it took a lot longer. The second one was only a year long and just sort of a little bit of a slap fight for a while. And that was that was that in this war. Interestingly enough, you have the United States on one side and two weirdly unlikely allies in Sweden and the kingdom of Sicily. Now, Sicily wasn't part of Italy, yet at this time they were their own independent thing. And these three nations teamed up to fight against these Barbary 
pirates. And now when I'm talking about Barbary, what exactly am I what exactly am I referencing? Now, at this point, there were separate nations occupying the North African coast of the Mediterranean, things like uh, Tunis, later would be Tunisia, uh, Tripoli, which would later be uh, Libya, um, Morocco, and Algiers, and all these places that were nations, and the people who occupied these nations were often referred to as Berber people. And just in the way, you know, language works and the way translation goes, these people started to be known as the Barbary people, B-A-R-B-A-R-Y, Barbary. And this area started to be known as the Barbary Coast. And the Barbary Coast is the only reason why these wars are called the Barbary Wars and these pirates are the Barbary Pirates. Now, let's just be super duper clear. These pirates were not really officially operating under the direct command of their uh, their nation that they would have hailed from. And obviously these crews are kind of mixed nation crews anyway of these uh, particular Barbary people. But at the same time, the rulers of these Barbary nations, things like, you know, Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli and uh, Morocco were all benefiting from what these Barbary Corsairs, Barbary pirates were doing. Now, the big thing that these Barbary pirates would do, they would basically it's a lot like the uh, it's a lot like the Somalian pirates over in the uh, that part of Ac- Africa, the eastern uh, part of Africa, and that little narrow region where shipping takes place for a lot of large nations. Somali pirates will capture ships and people and basically make whatever money they can off of the people or the goods or whatever they have at the time. Now, this is already being done by the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean a few hundred years earlier, what they would typically do was they would sail their ships around, they would capture merchant vessels, and then they would often sell those crews of those vessels into slavery, or they would ransom those crews uh, against the nation that they hailed from. So if you have a ship of, of English merchants or you know British merchants, they would sell some of them into slavery, and others, if they knew that they could catch a bunch of extra money off of them just by ransoming them back to their people, would ransom them back to their people and make a bunch of money that way. And this is actually an extremely profitable form of business for these pirates. It wasn't just like, well, we're pirates, we're going to sail the seas, capture people, capture loot, and just sort of subsist off of you know, stealing stuff. No, they they not only subsisted off of stealing shit, they made bank doing this. So there really was no incentive to stop doing what they were doing. Obviously, nobody enjoyed doing what they were doing, but at the same time, nobody really had the means to really stop them, as, as hopefully everybody by this point, if they've listened to the show, are well aware Europe was basically in a constant state of warfare for like a thousand straight years. And it wasn't just like Europe was just fighting each other all the time, but various large nations that actually had navies that could probably fight this sort of thing were always fighting each other. Spain was always fighting somebody. Portugal was always fighting somebody. The British were always fighting somebody. France, uh, different factions that would call Germany home. Uh, the Scandinavian states. Every everybody was just beating each other up. Italy. Every everybody that existed at this time just could not stop squabbling with the other people of their uh, their continent. And because of this, it always always opened up holes in you know the, it opened up holes in uh, the power vacuum that could be filled with people like the Barbary Pirates, people that would just sort of sit on the outskirts, do what they do, make their money, and go on their way. And it became such a weird part of European life that eventually there was an order, a Catholic Trinitarian order called the Mathurians, who operated from France for centuries while these Barbary Pirates were doing their work, with their special mission being the collecting and dispersing of funds for the relief and ransom 
of prisoners of these Barbary pirates. According to uh, historian Robert Davis, between a million and 1.25 million Europeans, that's million with an M, were captured by Barbary pirates and sold as slaves or ransomed between the 16th century and the 19th century, where we're now finding ourselves. That's that's an insane, insane amount of people just to be captured and either became slaves and probably lived their lives out as slaves and died. So, you know, great, great thing. You get in your merchant ship and you're just, you know, with your crew and you're going to sell some stuff. All of a sudden, here comes some fucking pirates. And now you're a goddamn slave for the rest of your life. That's awful. If you weren't one of the lucky ones that was going to be ransomed back to your nation, at which point you probably say, fuck being a sailor, I'm out, I'm staying on solid land from now on. So how does this all lead up into a weird little war between the United States and a bunch of goddamn pirates? Well, basically, during the American Revolution, the United States or, you know, whatever you would call yourselves at that point before you really were the United States, the, 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 the former colonies of the British Empire and the nation of France, particularly the uh, French monarchy at the time, had a treaty of alliance which helped protect the United States from uh, Great Britain, particularly you know, on the high seas since the United States didn't really have uh, much of a navy to speak of and also inadvertently help protect United States merchant shipping in the Mediterranean because the French did have a very viable navy at the time. So kind of in a in a roundabout way, the United States really didn't have to deal with these Barbary pirates during the the span of the American Revolution because they were protected by the French Navy during these times from around 1778 up to 1783. Now, once this uh, this Treaty of Alliance was over, literally immediately, the Barbary pirates started sacking and capturing American vessels. In particular, on October 11th of 1784, Moroccan pirates seized the brigantine uh, known as the Betsy. Now, the Spanish government, Spain being a nation that was like, hey, we're pretty familiar with these assholes. Let's, let's, uh, we're going to help you out in this situation. The Spanish government then negotiated the freedom of the captured ship and crew on the behalf of the very brand new United States and offered the United States advice on how to deal with these Barbary pirates. Their advice was that you had to offer tribute to prevent further attacks against merchant ships. Where does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the fucking mafia to me, where you basically pay money for quote-unquote protection, which is basically just bribe money to say, oh, we're not really protecting you from anything. We're just you know taking money from you so that we don't take your shit. So instead of us just sacking you and killing you and doing whatever we do, you just pay us straight up money and we'll leave you alone. That's basically what the Barbary states were demanding from different nations. Give us money and we won't attack your shipping. And at first, especially for a very young, not terribly wealthy yet nation such as the United States, this seemed like a pretty reasonable deal, at least at first. So the U.S. minister to France, a guy you may have heard of named Thomas Jefferson, decides to send envoys to Morocco and Algeria, and he was going to try to purchase treaties and freedom of those same captured sailors that were held by Algeria. Now, Morocco, and this is an interesting little tidbit as well, Morocco was the first Barbary Coast state to sign a treaty with the U.S. They signed that treaty on the 23rd of June of 1786, and this treaty formally ended all Moroccan piracy against American shipping interests. Specifically, Article 6 of that treaty states that if any Americans captured by Moroccans or Barbary Coast states docked at any Moroccan city, they would then be set free and they would come under protection of the Moroccan state. So Morocco was just like, yeah, you know what? You guys are nice. We like you. Uh, We're going to sign a treaty with you, which, interestingly enough, made Morocco the first nation to really recognize the United States as a sovereign state. That's a huge, you know, not to get too far off topic, but that's a huge part about being a nation on earth at any time, you know, but especially then, even up to now. If you want to be a nation on this earth, 
you have to be recognized by a bunch of other nations because if you aren't recognized by other nations as sovereign, you basically don't count or don't exist. So this is always important, especially with nations that undergo revolution, that split up, this, that, and the other thing. Sometimes this will happen. These nations will split up and then have their own little thing going on, and they want to become their own foreign country. They want to become their own separate sovereign nation. And they often seek to be recognized by other, usually extremely large powers, but really by anybody, to be considered a nation. If they aren't, then they often are just like, okay, whatever. People just shove them aside, and eventually they end up having to... Uh, relegate themselves back to the way they used to be, often with poor consequences because they were the ones revolting and leaving. This sort of happened later on, uh, about 60-ish years later, with the Confederate States of America not really ever being recognized as a nation formally by any other nation on Earth. Although, honestly, had they won the Civil War or the Civil War had gone a different direction and the United States and the Confederate States stayed split up, it is very likely that they would have eventually been recognized as a nation by a bunch of other countries, seeing as they took up a great deal of land and had an economy that offered things to other nations that needed it. But that's a giant aside to what we're just talking about. Back on topic... The Moroccans recognize the United States and start a gigantic treaty. Unfortunately, this action doesn't really pan out very much in Algeria, nearly as well as it panned out in Morocco. They were much less willing to hear out what the American envoys were saying. In fact, at this entire time, uh, especially in 1785, Algerian pirates were still capturing American ships. They captured the schooners Maria and the Dauphin, a week later after that. All four, then, of the Barbary Coast states demanded $660,000 each for the release of these sailors. Now, obviously, that sort of contradicts what I just said you know, about Morocco not wanting to make money off it. This happened in 1785. In 1786 is when the treaty was formally signed in the Moroccans' and the Americans' interests. So at this point, they were still taking money for these sort of things. Obviously, eventually the next year they would say, we're fine, we're not going to take any money. But at this point, while America is basically simultaneously uh, negotiating with Morocco and Algeria in particular, they are still all like, hey, give us money for your people. They demand $660,000 each. The envoys, unfortunately, were only given an allocated budget of $40,000 to achieve peace. Of course, this doesn't end up working out. Diplomatic talks to reach a reasonable sum for tribute don't really make much headway, and the crews of the Maria and the Dolphin remain enslaved for over a decade, soon to be joined by crews of other ships, obviously captured by these Barbary pirates. Now, later on, in 1795, Algeria finally comes to an agreement that resulted in the release of those 115 American sailors that they were holding, and it cost the United States over a million dollars. Now, all this doesn't sound like a shit ton of money now. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are fairly good that you know of someone personally in your life that has over a million dollars to their name, especially if you're living in a very nice part of the current present day contemporary United States. There are very many millionaires, just people, individual randos that don't matter at all that have well over a million dollars to their name. At this time, though, that million do dollars, excuse me, totaled more than one-sixth of the entire budget of the United States, and this was demanded as the tribute amount by the Barbary states to prevent then further piracy. So the Algerians and other Barbary states are saying, hey, give us a million goddamn dollars, and oh, by the way, give us a million dollars every single year, and we won't pirate your ships anymore. Eventually, interestingly enough, this continuing demand for this insane tribute led to the formation of a formal United States Navy. So whenever the Navy ce celebrates its birthday, they will celebrate that formal birthday in 1798. And this was formed to further prevent attacks upon American shipping and to end 
the demand for extremely large tributes. I, you know, when you think about it these days, that's like, you know, Americans being like, well, we don't want to be attacked by these other people, so let's just pay them like three fucking trillion dollars to stop attacking us. You know that, especially with the way America is these days, you know that shit wouldn't stand at all. And that would be literally, those would be fighting words. Like, give us, you want us to give you $3 trillion. Oh, how about this? You give us your deaths. Fuck you. It's time to fight. It's time to go right now. $3 trillion. Fuck you. And, you know, that that's exactly what you think these days. That's why this war, this Barbary war, sounds so stupid. It's like, why are we paying money to these guys as basically little bitches saying, oh, don't attack us. Here's a million dollars. You got to remember, though, at this point in United States history, that the United States was a baby country, a tiny little baby country formed of very few states, just basically on the eastern half of the North American continent in the United States portion of that continent. There wasn't a ton of money to be had. The central government wasn't nearly as strong as the federal government is these days, and as a result, you know, taxes were difficult to levy. Taxes weren't very high, which a lot of people would say, that's great. That sounds awesome. Except for the fact that you need goddamn taxes to protect your nation to pay for that big old military that you got. And at this time, the United States government didn't levy very many taxes. In fact, for the most part, state governments were nearly as powerful as the federal government themselves. So the United States was sort of acting a little bit more as a confederacy of states Uh, Not to be confused, obviously, with the Confederate States of America later on, but more in the general term of Confederacy where you have a bunch of loosely associated state governments making one giant federal government. And at this point, the United States just didn't have the ships or the funds or any of that stuff to really stop what these Barbary pirates were doing. So they relented and paid this million plus dollars per year or one sixth of their budget just to stop Barbary sailors from pirating and attacking their shipping vessels. In addition, the United States government and the people of the United States, who obviously were electing representatives into that government, started to be moved by various letters and testimonies that were sent to the United States by some of these captured sailors who would describe their captivity as a form of of slavery. Now, slavery was a little bit different, obviously, than the slavery that you would see in the United States and Europe at the time, as you could technically, as a slave, actually achieve wealth and power even as a slave in the, in, in the, the Barbary Coast, but that was much, much more the exception than the rule. Typically, most captives were pressed into hard labor in the service of these Barbary pirates and struggled under really poor conditions that obviously exposed them to disease and to vermin and all the bad stuff at this time of of our world that would end up basically killing these guys in the worst way possible. As word of this treatment reached the United States through these narratives, through these letters, the American people then pushed for direct government action to stop piracy against these ships. So going way back then to 1786, T.J. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, another man you may have heard of, these guys being the, the third and second presidents of the United States, respectively, went to London to negotiate with the Tripoli envoy, who basically, when T.J. and John Adams were saying, you know, why are you making these pretensions to make war upon nations who didn't do you any harm, basically saying, hey, man, we're just trying to ship over here. Why the fuck are you doing basically wartime actions against us when we didn't do any wartime action against you? The ambassador of Tripoli then replied, quote, it was written in the Quran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners, whom it was the right and duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave, and that every Muslim uh, referring to uh, an Islamic man, who was slain in this warfare was sure to go to paradise. He said also that the man who was the first aboard a vessel had one slave over and above his own share, and that when they sprang to the deck of an enemy's ship, Every sailor held a dagger in each hand and a third in his mouth, which usually struck such terror into the foe that they cried out for quarter at once, unquote. So 
you know, unfortunately, and, and you hate to make this sort of thing about religious warfare, and, and I will stand firm in the opinion that Barbary pirate, piratism was not religiously based. It was very much possession-based. It was very much wealth-based. It was probably only sort of justified by certain people in this way that this definitely still seems a little terroristic. You know, it's in, like I said, I'm very much a person who isn't just going to be like, well, look at them Islamic terrorists back in the 1800s. That's bullshit. That is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard. This quote that I just read is basically the envoy from Tripoli saying that this is why they do the things they do. It's very unlikely that that is actually the reason why they did anything they did. They very much did the things they did to, you know, make a bunch of goddamn money, much more than they thought that they were doing some sort of religious warfare. But obviously it's a quote. It's out there. I don't want to report, you know, you know, anything misleading. I want to put everything out there so that you can make your own judgment. Obviously, this podcast is mine, so I will make my judgment. But just to lay it out there, that is the way that the man presented his argument to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Jefferson then reports this conversation to the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, who was at this time John Jay, who then submitted the ambassador's comments to Congress. Jefferson argued that paying tribute wouldn't just encourage more attacks. Although John Adams did agree with Jefferson, he did believe that the circumstances forced the U.S. to pay tribute until an adequate Navy could be built and formed. The nation, the United States, had just fought a super exhausting revolutionary war, which had put the nation deep into debt of other foreign nations who had helped them out. Now, Federalist and Anti-Federalist forces, these are the political parties in the United States at the time, argued over the needs of the country and the burden of taxation, which we had just mentioned about how difficult it was for the federal government to tax the people of the United States. Jefferson's own Democratic-Republican Party and anti-navalists believe that the future of the country laid actually in westward expansion with Atlantic trade threatening to siphon money and energy away from the nation moving westward to be spent on wars taking place in the old world that Jefferson believed the United States didn't really have business hanging out in anyway. The U.S. then decided to pay Algiers that ransom and and paid that million dollars per year over the next 15 years for the safe passage of American ships and the safe return of captured American hostages. A million dollar payment in ransom and tribute to the privateering states amounted to approximately 10% of all U.S. government's annual revenues then in 1800. So a little less than one-sixth at this point, but still way too much goddamn money. Who, in their right minds, wants to spend 10% of their given budget on goddamn tribute to pirate states. Now, as we get into the uh, the 1800 election in the United States, at this point, George Washington had just served two terms, and his vice president, John Adams, then served a term, with Jefferson being his vice president. And you might be thinking, that's fucking weird, because at this point, Adams and Jefferson, though being very good friends in intellectual the intellectual sense and the guys that had been very close allies when it came to the the broader sense of humanity were very much anti one another when it came to foreign policy. Now, at this time in the United States, the way it worked was you ran for president. As many people as you wanted to ran for president just by themselves on their own ticket. If you're used to these current elections nowadays, you have a dual ticket where a president and a vice president will run together. And now, technically, they have to be separately elected the position, but it's basically a foregone formality that when a president on the ticket is elected, his vice president will then also be elected as the vice president, and it will continue on and on. But at this point in the United States history, you just ran by yourself. The number one vote-getter for president would become president. The number two vote-getter for president would then become vice president. So you could very much have, and it happened all the time, this being a great example of somebody being elected president and then somebody they fucking hated being elected vice president right below them, which didn't do much in terms of accomplishing executive branch items because often the president would be contradicted by the vice president and vice versa. And at this point, 
Jefferson is like, hey, I'm going to run for president again, and I'm going to be John Adams. John Adams doesn't believe in us getting out of this Barbary bullshit. I do believe in us getting out of this Barbary nonsense. And Jefferson continued to argue for the cessation of this tribute to these Barbary states. He had rising support from guys like George Washington and other important figures. And with the recommissioning of the American Navy in 1794, a few years earlier, and the resulting increased firepower on the seas, it became increasingly possible for America to finally say, fuck you, Barbary pirates, and refuse paying tribute. Although the longstanding habit was hard to overturn because it just became part of the Americas. It just became part of the budget. Like, hey, we've got budget for this stuff. Um, here's some budget for some roads, and here's our budget for tribute to a bunch of goddamn pirates. Um, you know, all in favor, I here we go. New budget, here we are again. So when Thomas Jefferson does win the presidency in 1800, just before his inauguration, Congress passed a naval legislation that, among other things, provides for six separate frigates to be built that, quote, shall be officered and manned as the President of the United States may direct, unquote. In the event of a declaration of war on the United States by these Barbary pirates, these ships were to, quote, protect our commerce and chastise their insolence, I like that, by sinking, burning, or destroying their ships and vessels wherever you shall find them, unquote. So, at this point, you have a guy like Jefferson who really doesn't even want to be over here in the first place. His his motivation for not wanting to pay these Barbary pirates isn't because he wants to destroy them and kick their ass and get the fuck out of here and do whatever you want. He more just doesn't even want to be involved in, as he says it, old world issues. He wants to instead expand westward in this sort of untamed United States and make the United States, you know, a power in that way, which obviously in a couple years he would with his purchase of the uh, Louisiana Territory from France. But at this point, his motivation is just like, we don't want to deal with paying you guys a bunch of money anymore. This is bullshit. If we didn't pay you guys all this money, we would have that money to spend on our own shit. So I'm not going to pay you anymore. Right after his inauguration in 1801, Yusuf Karamanli, who is uh, of Tripoli at this point, demanded $225,000 from this new administration. Jefferson, putting his long-held beliefs into practice, said, nope, refused. He refused the demand. Jefferson was a, a guy who just basically refused to negotiate with terrorists at this point. So on the 10th of May in 1801, this Tripoli alliance declared war on the United States, but not formally, they actually just declared war by cutting down the flagstaff in front of the U.S. consulate in Tripoli. Now, Algiers and Tunis did not follow their ally in Tripoli, just to note that sort of thing. They did not follow in step and declare war against the United States in that way. Only the Tripoli state did this. Jefferson then sends a uh, three frigate and one schooner squadron under the command of Commodore Richard Dale with gifts and letters to attempt to maintain peace with the Barbary powers. Now, he did this before the uh, Tripoli nation declared war on the United States. However, in the event that war would be declared, because Jefferson had a foresight of that way, Commodore Dale was instructed to protect American ships and citizens against potential aggression and may go as far as to actually seize all vessels and goods of the Pasha of Tripoli and also to cause to be done all such other acts of precaution or hostility as the state of war will justify. Eventually, this American flotilla was actually joined by a Swedish flotilla. That's how they get into this sort of thing, who was already blockading Tripoli anyway. The Swedish also having been at war with these guys since 1800. So now you done pissed off two different nations. And not only that... As I stated at the top of the show, on the 31st of May in 1801, Commodore Edward Preble then traveled to Messina in Sicily to the court of King Ferdinand IV, and Ferdinand supplied the Americans with manpower, craftsmen, supplies, gunboats, mortarboats, 
and the ports of Messina, Syracuse, and Palermo to be used as a naval base to launch their operations against Tripoli because they also fucking hated Tripoli. So now you got the U.S., the Sweden, and the Sicily all going into battle with the state of Tripoli. And it's so it's so funny to think of the fact that Jefferson really didn't want much to do with war over here. And then after about a year, he was like, fuck yeah, let's go to war. And Jefferson then eventually sends even more ships that the United States had built to increase the military force and presence over in that region, having sent the Argus, the Chesapeake, the Constellation, the Constitution, the Enterprise, the Intrepid, the Philadelphia, and the Siren, all seeing service during this little baby war under the overall command of Commodore Preble. Um, it's just it's just hilarious how he was like, I don't know if we really want to do this. Oh my God, we're having a war. Send everything. Fuck these pirates. Let's do this. Let's send the goddamn Enterprise, among other things, to go fight the Barbary Corsairs. So how did this war then pan out? Well, in October of 1803, the Tripoli fleet captured the USS Philadelphia intact after the frigate had ran aground on a reef while patrolling the Tripoli Harbor. The Americans were about to make landfall in uh, Tripoli itself, part of now modern-day Libya. Efforts by Americans to float the ship while under fire from shore batteries and the Tripoli Navy had failed. The ship and its captain, William Bainbridge, and all officers and crew were taken ashore and held as hostages. The Philadelphia was turned against the Americans and anchored in the harbor and used as a gun battery. On the night of the 16th of February of 1804, a little bit later on, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur led a small detachment of U.S. Marines aboard the captured Tripolitan Ketch, rechristened the USS Intrepid, thus deceiving the guards on the Philadelphia to float close enough to border. Decatur's men then stormed the ship and overpowered the Tripoli sailors with fire support from American warships. The Marines then set their own fire to the Philadelphia, burning it and denying her use by the Tripoli Navy. British Admiral Horatio Nelson, Admiral Nelson, if you're a drunk person, has his own goddamn rum, just like Captain Morgan, repeatedly called this particular action the most bold and daring act of this age. Commodore Preble then attacked Tripoli itself on the 14th of July in 1804 in a series of somewhat inconclusive battles, including a courageous but ultimately unsuccessful attack attempting to use that intrepid, undercapted Richard Somers as a fire ship packed with explosives and sent to enter Tripoli Harbor, where she would then blow herself up and the enemy fleet. So a suicide run. However, the Intrepid was destroyed before this, possibly by enemy gunfire before it achieved its goals, unfortunately killing Somers and his entire crew. The turning point in the war, though, happened at the Battle of Derna in 1805. The Battle of Derna would be led by William Eaton, a former U.S. captain who used the title of general, in quotes, and a bunch of U.S. Marines leading a force of a bunch of mercenaries from Greece, Crete, some Arabs and Berbers even, on a march across the desert from Alexandria, Egypt, into Libya, into Tripoli, to capture the city of Derna. Now, this was the first time that the United States achieved a successful war battle on foreign soil and raised the flag in victory on said soil. And if you've ever heard the Marine Corps uh, hymn or the Marine Corps song that is played, you know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, that is in reference to this particular battle, a very important part of Marine Corps history, just for you Marine Corps buffs out there. This capturing of the city finally gave American negotiators leverage in securing the return of hostages and finally ending this stupid petty war with a bunch of stupid pirates. And now overall, Tripoli was weary of this continued blockade of American, Sicilian, and Swedish ships and all these little raids, and were now under threat of a continued advance on the actual city of Tripoli inside the nation state of Tripoli, 
and they decided to sign a treaty with the United States, stating that the Bashaw of Tripoli shall deliver up to the American squadron now off Tripoli all the Americans in his possession, so on and so forth. Now, very unfortunately, Thomas Jefferson still agreed to pay a ransom of $60,000 for these American prisoners, formally drawing a distinction between paying tribute, which is obviously paying stuff to not have stuff done to you, and then paying ransom, which is just paying for somebody who's already captured and, you know, acts sort of in that way. William Eaton, the aforementioned guy who led the raid across from Alexandria, Egypt, into um, into Tripoli itself, remained bitter for the rest of his life about this dumb little treaty because he felt that his efforts had been squandered by the American emissary from the U.S. State Department at the time, diplomat Tobias Lear. Eaton and others felt that the capture of Derna, which they did, should have been used as a bargaining chip to obtain the release of all American prisoners without having to pay that $60,000 ransom. He also believed that the honor of the United States had been compromised when they abandoned one of the men who they were basically going to restore as leader of Tripoli in a move that is very American because obviously that happens all the time in the history of America. Fight somewhere, depose a leader, install your own leader. He was mad that they didn't install who they promised to install. Of course, Eaton's complaints basically went unheard, especially as the years start to strain and go by and attention goes back to the United States proper because the United States is having very strained relations with Great Britain, which would eventually lead to the War of 1812. That war in 1812 would eventually lead to the United States having a weakened force in the Barbary pirate area, whereby in 1807 Algiers had gone back to taking American ships and sailors hostage, and the Americans couldn't do a whole bunch about it because they were basically busy with dealing with the British near the War of 1812. And they were unable to respond to this provocation until the War of 1812 ended. They sent ships back. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, they engaged in the Second Barbary War in 1815. And by that point, all tributes and ransoms were stopped. And, of course, the United States would continue to grow in power and influence. And none of that shit would ever happen again. But the moral of that story was the United States was a very small, weak baby nation at the time and was being forced to pay tribute to a bunch of what basically ended up being a bunch of privateers, a bunch of pirates of these nation states of North Africa. Thomas Jefferson doesn't want to be involved and decides that he's not going to pay that shit anymore. The pirates say, screw that. We're going to continue capturing your stuff. And TJ says, well, screw you. I'm sending all my best ships over there and we're going to fight you straight up. The United States, with help from Sweden and Sicily, fight off a bunch of Barbary pirates and thus secure their release and ending of tribute paid to most of these states. Although it wouldn't be formally formally dealt with completely and utterly until 1850 in the Second Barbary War. And that's it. That is all there is to say about this weird little war that took place between the United States and a bunch of pirates in the early 1800s. And now, for your actually very sequitur, a fact of the week. The aforementioned treaty that was signed by the Moroccans with the Americans, uh, having recognized the United States as a nation for the first time, was known as the Moroccan-American Treaty of Friendship. The fact about this one that is so interesting is the first treaty signed by the United States with a foreign power and is the longest-lasting unbroken treaty. It still goes to this very same day. That is an interesting, weird fact. And as usual, you guys, that ends another installment of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I have been Kyle, your host, a man who you can find on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can find the show that you are listening to, the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. You can find it on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can find the show on Facebook if you want to follow it there. Search Knowledge from the Couch podcast. You will find 
our itty bitty little group with over a hundred members. You can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser if you feel like it, and you can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com if you're into that sort of thing. Guys, check out my second appearance on the All Things Action video cast. I will link it in the notes for this week as well. This week, Aaron had me on his show to talk about historical topics. The first time he had me on his show last week, we talked about superhero stuff, so it wasn't really anything that had to do with this show in particular, but it is part of my own separate interest, and we had a great time doing so. The other show that we did together was sort of a mashup of this show in particular and his show where he discusses uh, with me historical figures and how they sort of relate to action heroes in their own right. You should go check it out. It's a fun episode, and I had a really great time doing it, and it will not be the last time that I appear on that show, nor will Aaron not appear on this show. He will definitely be on when we start having guests on this show a time in which I have no clue when that will be happening. I keep saying it. I keep promising it. Be patient with me, guys. I am busy, you know, learning a new job and making this show when I can. So it is a bit of a thing. But, at you know, whatever it takes, we will eventually figure that whole thing out. You can find the show literally anywhere you can find podcasts. Search Knowledge for the Couch Podcast from the Couch Podcast. Assume I can't even get my own goddamn show's name right. Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. Search it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Overcast. Tune in anywhere that you find podcasts. You will find this show. While you're there, rate it, review it, subscribe to it. Do all the things that you can do to it in your app. I would be forever grateful if you did so. Guys. Until next week, where we talk about another weird, dumb, interesting little war in history. Until next week, live long and prosper. That is my dream.